I'm delighted to be here tonight to launch the Origin Speaker Series in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee. This gathering is intended to elevate the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and growers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish, shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses, and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that farmers and producers are doing in our area. The conversation is being held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Tonight's program is about the very important topic of pollinators and honeybees and their crucial role in our food production. We are pleased to welcome a distinguished panel featuring Dr. Dennis Van Engelsdorp, Assistant Professor at the University of Maryland's Department of Entomology, and an internationally known honeybee epidemiologist. David C. Heisler, farmer and owner of the Comus Market in Comus, Maryland, and Jack Leonard, a landscape architect, beekeeper, and assistant professor at Morgan State University's Landscape Architecture Program. Now I'd like to turn the program over to Dana Slater, the producer of the Origin Speaker Series. So tonight we have a great lineup of really experts in bees, pollinators, this whole world of landscape architect, what we do in our backyards, what we're doing to our native plant world, how we sort of look at what we're doing with our food sources, and so forth and so on. So, to start with Jack, Jack Leonard right here uh, is the landscape architect. He's got a master's degree in landscape architecture and he's completing a program in environmental studies. He's also an assistant professor of landscape architecture at Morgan State University School of Architecture and Planning with a focus on urban sustainability. Jack is also a master of gardener and a beekeeper. Dr. Dennis Van Engelsdorp um, is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland's Department of Entomology and an internationally known honeybee epidemiologist. He told me to just say he's the honeybee guy. So his bio goes on for about three pages here. But I'm gonna say that. He's the honeybee guy. <laughs> In the middle, we have our farmer, our expert on biodiversity, David Heisler, was born in the shadow of Sugarloaf Mountain. Comus Market is in Comus, Maryland, a beautiful part of northern Montgomery County that I had never been to and had the, um, a lucky, lucky day. Spent a great day with David. Uh, loved, loved seeing his operation. Grew up in on a dairy farm. And um, I'm just going to read a quote of David's, which kind of sums up, I think, his personality. He feels very connected to the land in this beautiful, beautiful corner of Maryland, living such a close proximity to one of the fastest growing suburban regions in the U.S. One of his main goals is biodiversity and landscape conversation. With this in mind, I plant my crops and choose my farming methods to favor biodiversity. Raising honeybees is one part of that. And I'll tell you, one thing David said to me when I met him was he said, I don't, uh, I'm not a beekeeper, I'm a bee haver, which I love. <laughs> um, as a sole grower on David's farm, David's priority is producing extremely high quality pumpkins and squashes, which we'll be eating tonight. Depending on the season, Comus Market offers cider, apples, honey, jellies, pickle, pickles, preserves, and especially pumpkins and squash. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Spike. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, it's great to see everybody here. I think this is our best turnout yet, and uh, for good reason. This this um, uh, topic is near and dear to a lot of us that care about food. Uh, as Dana said, it connects to food in, in ways that we probably don't all think about every day, but I know we're going to learn a lot uh, tonight about how it does. Uh, for me at Woodbury, uh, I think our realization of, 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 of the role of bees goes back to the very first uh, to our first beginnings and probably played into the fact or, uh, that we put as an epigram on our menu um, a Joe, Joe Strummer quote I'm also a huge Clash fan but uh, that, that was a, a line from his um, from his song Johnny Appleseed which was if you're after getting the honey then you don't go killing all the bees and uh, it seemed to, to um, um, condense what Woodbury was going to be all about and it still does I think it's still on there after these almost eight years um, and it just was a great starting point for us to think about the food and that we were going to get from this food system and our role in it. The other thing I will say and why I'm so interested to talk to, to this panel tonight is that uh, Woodbury is, and, and Woodbury especially, is moving away from using refined uh, cane sugars and corn sweeteners in our cooking. And we've made a commitment to be off of, of, of uh, refined sugars uh, by 2016, which is looming. Uh, um, and we've we've been a, we've been successful in in, in making rather large um, shifts away from certain commodities. Um, in addition to our intense local sourcing of, of almost everything else, um, we've had success moving away from citrus um, and moving away from um, um, non locally grown and milled uh, flowers. And I think the toughest but biggest one that we've made right now is that we are going to have uh, no uh, uh, refined sugars in in the restaurant by by next year. And so that means a, a heightened dependence, a heightened reliance, and, and more use of maple syrup, honey, and sorghum syrup, three things that which, which we can um, obtain from local sources. Uh, so as a chef and as a restaurant owner who's made these commitments, this is a, a very a great interest. Uh, we tend to, to uh, look a little, our leap a little bit before we look in these things, but we've, uh, we think that it's the right direction for us and will compel us as these other choices have uh, to look a little deeper uh, within our food system. So that being said, uh, I want to welcome our panelists uh, and thank you for being here and taking the time to, to participate in this conversation. Uh, my first, I'm going to kind of direct uh, the, my first question to Dennis. Uh, and if you could, uh, even in some of the conversations I had with some of our guests tonight, you know, I heard some of the frustration of keeping bees and, and how um, the colonies will die and perish and how that is, and that's something that I think a lot of us are aware of. Uh, when it comes to uh, the state of the honeybee in this country and probably globally, uh, is, is the colony collapse disorder is, a, is, a, is an issue. And there, I've, I've heard from time to time that it's kind of been solved, but then heard uh, that it's still a problem. Um, and I'd love to get your sense of kind of where we are um, as the bee guy, as the honeybee guy, with that, and then maybe a, a, broader, a broader kind of sense of, of how this connects into a much larger world of pollinators that we may not be thinking about as much. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a really ex an exciting um, thing to be part of, so I'm, I'm very happy for the invitation, and thanks for coming out. I just want to get a sense, how many beekeepers are in the room? So three. How many people in the room have never opened a beehive? So th the first thing I will say is that I challenge you to find someone who is a beekeeper and open a beehive, because it's one of those life-changing experiences. Because... What happens is you open that hive and you've got 40,000 sisters working in collaboration 
and you know the birds are singing they're making this liquid gold you have to be in the zen of beekeeping because if you're agitated they let you know and so you have to find that zen and so it's one of the most miraculous things you can do and I think right away when you open a hive, you know if you're a beekeeper. They say that. It's in your blood. You're stung once, it's in your blood, and you know you're a beekeeper for life. And so I would encourage you to do that. And so it's with that in light that, that, that most of us who are beekeepers um, really have a passion for these amazing creatures. That in 2006, 2007, I was the state apiarist of Pennsylvania, and I got a call from Dave Hackenberg, who's the largest beekeeper in Pennsylvania, and he'd been talking about how his bees were boiling over that October. They were the best bees he'd ever had. And he moved them all down into to, to Florida, as he does every year. And he came back a month later to find that 2,000 of his 3,000 colonies had completely disappeared. If you're ever in a bee yard, you know it has a hum. It has this buzz. And so he talks about getting out of the car or the truck and realizing something was wrong, that it was dead silent, which never happens in, in a bee yard. And he got on his hands and knees and he looked into the, into the colonies and there was nothing there. And this was really new. So he called me up in Pennsylvania and he tr- trucked some bees up. And soon we found out this was happening in many places in California and Florida, the wintering grounds of most of the colonies in the country. And, and, and that's when we termed the, col- this, the term CCD, colony collapse disorder. And that was because we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't identify a cause and it died with very specific symptoms. Now, since then, people have used this term, colony collapse disorder, to describe any dead bee colony, which was not our original intent, but we can't fight that anymore. In a nutshell, we have not seen colony collapse disorder by that case definition for three years. We've seen a lot of bees die, though, since then, um, for the last 10 years. Nearly 50% last year of the colonies in the country died. And the Having said that, though, the total number of colonies in the country has remained stable or increased. And that's because beekeepers are really good at replacing dead colonies. So if you have a live colony and a dead colony, you can split that live colony in half, buy a queen, and put her in there, and you've replaced your losses. So we've actually increased the number of colonies managed nationally because they're able to replace them so quickly. So. So what happened? Well, with CCD, what we think has happened is that the bees, for some reason, became very susceptible to every virus going. And those viruses, when they're in the colony, they induce something we call altruistic suicide. So they're a social organism. There's a big argument that we should not think of a bee as a bee. There's a Latin saying, una apis, not a apis. A bee is not a bee. It's the colony. It's the superorganism. That's the living entity. And so as a social organism, they've evolved the response that if they somehow know they're sick, they want to fly away from the colony and die away from the colony, not to kill their nest mates. We see this in termites. If termites get a fungal infection, they'll walk out of the colony and they'll tap their foot in a certain pattern. It's called the leper's walk. And it's saying, don't touch me because I'm sick. Just let me get out of here and I'll die away. And so we think... That, that CCD, that mass evacuation of bees from the colony and dying away from the hive, was caused by high virus levels. What we don't understand is why they were so susceptible. Now, since then, it's been really clear that bees are dying for a whole bunch of other reasons. And there's general consensus that there are three principal causes. The first is varroa mite. 
And these are, this is a large parasitic mite. If we were a bee, it'd be like a dinner plate feeding on us. And this mite comes from the Asian bee and jumped hosts and eventually made it over here in the 1980s. And there's no question that this mite is killing most of the colonies in the country. 60, 60 to 70% of beekeepers, especially small-scale beekeepers, do not treat for this mite. And what we have evidence for now is that those beekeepers are really trying to do it out of a good, the goodness of their heart. They're thinking, well, if I have 10 colonies, I'll let them survive, and the ones that survive is great, I'll breed from them. So if nine die, that's okay, I'll breed from the other. But what they forget is that as those colonies die, those bees in the last stages fly away and bring those mites to their neighbors and to their other colonies. And so at the landscape level, we're seeing these huge, especially at this time of year, these huge movement of mites from colony to colony, from neighbor to neighbor. So it's sort of like this tidal wave going right through the state or right through the country. And so that's a major driver. The next one, and we hear a lot about this, of course, are pesticides. Neonics get particularly focused on. We have no field realistic data to show that neonics is a major driver of losses. We have a lot of data that there's a lot of different chemicals coming into the colony, especially fungicides, and we think that they acting together are causing a lot of the damage. We also know that beekeepers have to apply a lot of pesticides to control varroa mite, and they too are part of that problem. And the third, and I think that's where it ties in nicely with the next two speakers, is poor nutrition. We've seen a huge change at the U.S. landscape level in terms of what good bee forage is. And we've seen this over the last 100 years. 100 years ago, all the beekeepers would have been in New York State. It was a cattle state, grew a lot of clover. All the commercial beekeepers were in New York State. When that got replaced with alfalfa, everyone moved to Kansas. It was the best beekeeping state in the country until 1970, and a cow farmer figured out that if you cut the, the, the alfalfa at 10% bloom, it was better for the cows. So all the farmers started cutting at 10% bloom. Everyone moved out of Kansas, and they all went to North Dakota. And in North Dakota, over the last five years, because of the price of corn and soybean, a lot of land that used to be on CRP, so the government used to pay for them to not use that land for agricultural purposes and keep it in meadow, has been plowed under for corn and soybean in order to go after farm <coughs> insurance money. And so that means that there's no places left in the United States to bring bees and get them healthy. And so one of the big emphases is we need to make sure that we keep our landscape with pollinator-friendly plants in order to sustain the health. Just like us, if you're, not, you're malnourished, you're going to not be able to fight off infection or, or, or pesticide poisoning. And so the idea is to get as much nutrition into those colonies to keep them healthy for as long as possible. So I think I've summed that up. Now I do want to say, in terms of the native pollinators, honeybees are not native. They came over with the colonists. Um, they were called the white man fly by the Native Americans um, because they followed the white man as they walked across the, uh, across the, uh, the continent. Um, and we have over 5,000 native bees in this country, over 400 in Maryland. And these are jewels, like these are beautiful, green, metallic, green, metallic, blue. And a lot of what we can do is not just about the honeybee, but about these native pollinators, which after all are much better at pollinating native plants than they are, um, um, than honeybees are. So I think that, that, that helping honeybees also helps, very importantly, this idea of biodiversity. So Jack, 
<coughs> Thank you. That was amazing, Dennis. You know, it occurs to me that as you know, we hear about bees and the kind of ubiquity, it, it, and and not only honeybees, but obviously these native pollinators that we can think of almost everywhere, whether it's countryside, sub suburban, or urban areas as bee habitat, right? And and that means that virtually all of our activity somehow is is interacting or, or is, is having an impact on bees. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Well, since you brought your, you started your conversation with a quote from a song, I'll do the same thing. If everybody remembers Joni Mitchell, they paved paradise to put up a parking lot. That's part of the issue. The way we have developed, the way we have changed the landscape has drastically affected the habitat and the, and the source of uh, food for, for our native as well as the honeybees. Okay. Um, what we've done, and you can look outside here, is most of the, the urban landscape is devoid of much plant material, and most of that plant material that is there is not native plant material. Part of the issue we run into, and I've mentioned this earlier, is um, this idea that the native plants are treated as not as valuable as the non-natives. Why? Because the non-native plants don't get chewed on, they stay pretty, um, they're not as susceptible to our natural viruses and things that are here. So we want to put them in the landscape and the people that sell us those plants can sell us something that they won't be brought back as a problem. Uh, a lot of my clients uh, want gardens and of course the favorite garden is what? A butterfly garden. But nobody wants anything chewing on their plants. So they don't want caterpillars, but they want butterflies. So there's this disconnect in, in our thought process of how, how the ecology works. And so what we've done is we've basically replaced our native plants with these non-native plants. Uh, one of my favorite authors and a fellow entomologist is Dr. Doug Tallamy out of University of Delaware. He wrote a book called Bringing Nature Home. And it, it really sunk in with me as, as a landscape architect that there's such a connection between insect species and certain plants. We assume that if there's a plant out there blooming, that that's going to take care of it. But there's so, he was saying that specialization is more the norm than the exception. That there's more of these insects and more pollinators that are directly related to certain plants than the ability to just be generalist. And so what we've done is we've removed a lot of those plants from the landscape. What I've try to do is bring those plants back into the landscape, which is sort of easy to do on kind of that suburban rural fringe where everybody has lots of property. Well, how do we do it in the city? Um, we don't think of the city as, as having a need for pollinators uh, because we're not, we don't have farms in the city, so why do we care? Well, every plant that has a flower is usually pollinated, uh, your home gardens, and I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the pollinators don't necessarily live in the crop fields in all cases. They are traveling from, from one place to the other. So by providing habitat in one area, you're actually providing a source of those pollinators for other people that need them. And it also creates the diversity. And uh, we'll hear a little bit more about the farming practices and, and good farming practices, I guess, as well as, as bad farming practices. So how do, we, how do we do that in the landscape? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is start, start demanding that our landscapes, our landscapers, our sources of plants provide us with more native plants. Uh, I do a lot of projects uh, with uh, with stormwater issues. We do a lot of rain guards and such. And people always want to know, where can I buy native plants? Well, the problem is most of the native plant sources are wholesalers. 
they are not retailers. And so you go to the, the typical box store or whatever, and you get mainly the plants that always look pretty, the, the non-native plants, and you'll see a few native plants. Of course, we don't sell the, the native plants because they have names like weeds, you know, milkweed, sneezeweed, and whatever. And I was mentioning that the thing that's grow up in the middle of the sidewalk is the tree of heaven. And this is one of Dr. Talamy's uh, you know, comments. So I think what we need to start looking at is how do we change our landscapes I think part of it is just focusing on the types of plants and then the diversity of plants. Uh, you, you see very sterile landscapes, a lot of all the same plant. Uh, there's a lot of spaces to put plants, even in the urban areas, the street trees. Well, there's certain trees such as the oaks, the maples, uh, the willows, uh, the black cherries. I mean, the black cherries are one of the primary sources of uh, caterpillars for nesting birds. Well, the black cherry is the tree that always has that ugly-looking, you know, caterpillar nest that everybody wants to rip down and, and spray. So we've got to we've got to change our attitudes towards what a good lands and healthy landscape is. So I think, from my perspective as a designer and also as a teacher of future designers, is to try to get this mindset that let's look at the landscape differently. We want a good, diverse, balanced, all the way from the small you know, urban lot all the way up to uh, the farm areas. So well, that brings up uh, David, and you know you're a farmer that I met a couple years ago. Steve introduced us, I think, and um, you were growing beautiful pumpkin and squash. But when we first met, all you wanted to talk about was bees and native pollinators, and it just it drew me in because you were thinking about things in a way that I hadn't heard with all the farmers that I've talked to and all the growers we were working with. You were the first guy that came out and really said, "This is part of what I'm doing. This isn't an, this isn't incidental to what I'm doing," and I was just fascinated by your account of you know what was going on at your farm and how your crops, the squash that you were growing, and a lot of other things that you chose to grow, mostly because they would support pollinator populations. Is that right? Um, it's certainly the pollinators are a huge aspect of, of, of my farming philosophy, but it's it's it my philosophy is biocentric in nature. So I'm trying to. Um, as, as a farmer who's dealing with the landscape, trying to produce um, a food source, um, whether it's for an animal or whether it's for humans, um, there's competition across that landscape. Some of it good, some of it bad. I grew up um, on some of the same land that I, I still walk, so it's been interesting watching the changes of that landscape over, over half a century. Um, a lot of what I see is a huge difference in the scale that the landscape's being manipulated, the timing of those, those manipulations. It's not just whether it's a pesticide or insecticide or herbicide or fungicide. Um, a lot of those products have, have increased, but it's because of the scale of, of the farming practices now. Um, even even the, the capacity of uh, how, how quick yards are mowed. Um, It'd be great to have white Dutch clover in everybody's yard, um, but when a mowing crew comes in at, at, at daybreak and spends the entire day just mowing mowing yards with white clover um, that are full of bees, that clover may not be helping the bees. Um, I got off the subject there a little bit, but but I think um, so. What I saw trying to produce a crop was. Pests, pests of all kind, um, deer, 
groundhogs, crows, insects, fungicides. And I was using the University of Maryland Extension commercial vegetable guidelines um, and losing my crop and putting a lot of inputs into it. I have, have tinkered with, with, quote, organic farming, um, but I, I, I'm not organic, and I'll just say that. I'm not, I'm not conventional. I want to have, have the potential for any tool in my toolbox. I want me to have an under, I want to have an understanding of the why, when, and how I use that tool. Once I keep pollinators in mind, um, it certainly limits the use, the timing of, of a use. Um, but then I, I've, I've also changed my planting patterns um, so that I always have ground set aside for pollinators of beneficial insects. Um, I. I focus on the timing of the pests, timing of pollinators, the timing of my crop when it needs pollinators, when it doesn't need pollinators, and I try to break up the cycles um, to interfere with, 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 the, with the pests or have something, a, a, a plant a crop that's a better draw for a pest to get them away from my crop. I've been able to, in my pumpkins and winter squash, I grow over 40 varieties. I've been able to eliminate my insecticide use completely. Even organic growers can't say that. Um, I've been able to reduce my fungicide uh, applications by at least 50%, some years by 70, um, from when I was growing, growing conventionally. I had the benefit of, as a kid growing up on a dairy farm. Um, we were growing a whole diversity of crops. We were, we were growing all these crops as food sources for our cows to keep them healthy to produce milk, um, and that broke the landscape up. So there was there was wheat, there was corn, there was alfalfa, there was clover, there was barley, um, pasture fields. Um, in in my area, Montgomery County, we we had over 400 dairy farms when I was growing up. We have, I think, five now. Um, what's what's taken over? If it has not development, then it's the commodity crop growers. And, and they get beat up a lot in the press because of their use of, of pesticides. But I'm growing, I'm rotating my pumpkin fields in an area that is predominantly farmed by these commodity crop guys. And yet I can do it in a way that, keep, that keeps a sustainable and increasing number of, of pollinators in and around the farms where I grow my pumpkins. It's not, it's not the, that particular farming practices. Um, it's just not giving the space and the understanding to allow biodiversity to come in. So people always ask me, how many acres do I grow? I don't look at it as acreage. I look at it as a footprint. So I'm not, it's not just a 20-acre field of pumpkins. It's all the border areas. It's the fence rows. It's the pond. It's the wooded wood edges. All of those areas, I can do just minor manipulations um, with a minimal amount of, of labor, a minimal amount of cost, and, and know that it'll support the biodiversity that I want. Um, that um, it's a huge um, what I found when I, once I started off managing for pollinators and for pest mammals like deer um, I, over the years I've gotten to, to see the, the beneficial predatory insects that come in and, and, and use those that habitat um, I do think there's a symbiotic relationship across the board when it comes to biodiversity um, 
humans have a tendency to see just the negative. Um, you get you get bit by an insect and you swell up. It hurts, but is there some benefit that you don't see to your immune system? Certainly, you you build up immunity to bee stings. Well, maybe it turns you into a beekeeper. So yeah, that's right. Which would be a benefit. Wow. Um, well, before we, I think we've got a. I don't know how you guys are feeling. I'm feeling like I've already had my mind blown a little bit. Um, but I guess before we open it up, I I would love to look down the road a little bit. Um, like I said, I'm trying to make this commitment to uh, to use only uh, local sources of, of sweetness of, of uh, for our for our cooking at Woodbury. Am I crazy to do that? Is there is there is there a um, what does it look like going forward with with especially with honey um, from our landscape from our you know from as a as a local product um, and what what can we do I think to ensure that we have sources of honey you know in the future. So yeah, that's the good question. I mean, we say that there are three things everyone can do to help the bees. One is become uh, a beekeeper, and I've already sort of done that, and so I encourage you to try that. Given that, it's not for everyone. The next one is to buy local honey. Local honey is the most ethical sweetener as it takes the least amount of carbon to get to your, your table. And so it's clearly the most ethical in terms of carbon footprint. Um, it's, it's a great resource, and it's also a resource that people both in the rural and the urban area can do. Um, yeah, we always joke, we help manage the beehives at the White House. And the first time the, bee, the commercial beekeepers were going to go visit this White House, they were sort of chuckling because they were saying, look at that, Obama. Because, cons- like, I mean, commercial beekeepers are all really conservative, so they don't really like Obama anyway. But, um, you know, they were chuckling because here he had 20, like, he had seven or eight honey supers, and usually a beekeeper has two or three honey supers. And they say, oh, look, he doesn't know what he's doing. And then they got in there and opened it up, and it was chock full. And that's because often... In, in, the, in the city center, there are a lot of lindens and there are a lot of trees that are really good nectar producers, and there are no other bees around. So he did, like he was doing, he, I mean, he's had state dinners serving White House honey. So he did really well. So that, well, that's what's great about honey, too, is it can come from anywhere. And I think that's exciting. But I think that we've all, I think we've all hit on this point is that the most important thing we can do is to make sure there is forage there. Not just for the honeybees, but also those native bees. And for me, my sort of pivot point was when CCD first broke, I was asked to give a talk in the Champagne region in France. And I had half a day off, you know, and I'm in the Champagne region of France. You know what I wanted to do, right? <laughs> and the, the beekeeper of that group insisted that I go and visit World War I cemeteries. And I'm thinking... Like, what? Like, and I'm trying every trick I know to say, I'd rather go to the Champagne Caves, you know? It didn't work. And, and, the, and he brought me out, and what you have to know about World War I cemeteries in Europe is that the, I think the word is interned. The, the people who are interned in that cemetery, the government whose people are interned there, control that cemetery. So they manage it by the culturally acceptable practices of that country. So you go to the French cemetery, and it's perfectly flat, perfectly green, and nothing is there. It's dead. And then you go half a kilometer later, and there's the British cemetery. And you have a couple of poppies or whatever growing in front of the tombs. And you have a couple of bees. And then you go to the German cemetery, where there's no acceptable use of herbicide. And so the, 
even though the lawn is cut, it has hundreds of di- or dozens of species of flowering plants, and it was alive, and it was immediately across the road from the French cemetery, which makes you think that our idea of this perfectly mown flat green lawn is actually just a legacy of our colonial past. It's a disgusting legacy of this sense of privilege because they're the only people who could afford it. And really, these are green deserts. And so if we change... You remember give a hoot, don't pollute? Do you remember how... You'd never think about throwing things out of your window in your car anymore. And so we need a cultural mind shift to say that it is not acceptable to have these vast expanses of, of basically parking lots of grass because there's nothing there. They don't do anything. We need to get away from that cultural mindset and start planning in much more interesting and valuable and culturally important ways. And I think that that's the hope, is where we start that movement of making it unacceptable to have large lawns. Make meadows, not lawns, I think is the message. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think the comment earlier about clover, I remember when I was younger, when you bought grass seed, it had clover seed in it. You know, clover is a nitrogen fixture, so it's actually good for the lawn. And now what we do is we put this artificial material down with very shallow root systems that really does not much of anything, compacts the soil, so all of the ground-dwelling bees really don't have any place to live. We're running over it. We're, we're closing up you know, their sources. Uh, so if we can convert more and more of that lawn, plus the lawns are doing what? They're fertilized. They're full of pesticides. They're... Uh, watered with our potable water sources, which makes no sense at all. And and so if we start removing more and more turf, or even mowing it a different way, mow higher, let the let the clover stay in the grass, change that mindset. Uh, but then also start looking at our landscapes in general. Uh, I was involved last year because uh, we're starting to get some some emphasis, you know, at the federal level. Uh, the president had put out uh, for this pollinator initiative, and I was representing, uh, as part of American Society of Landscape Architects, kind of the design part of uh, the landscape, and we were putting together recommendations on what we can do, starting at the federal level, because the federal government controls an awful lot of land, how do they put policies in place to start promoting healthier habitats, maybe along federal highways, in federal parks, in Uh, anything that's owned by the federal government instead of traditional practices how can we start putting them in some of those were actually started to be implemented I think a lot of them are more policy than than law at this point but I think we're seeing a shift Uh, I think the idea even though the honeybees are only a small piece of it the honeybees is what we see and the honeybees produce something that we all like which is honey so we all get concerned when we start losing honeybees Uh, we're not really sure I think how many bumblebees are out there, whether we're losing them at the same rate, whether all these small you know, bees are being lost at the same rate. They're like the canary in the, in the coal mine, I guess, that they're the indicator of something's, something's going on. Uh, but I think the idea of starting to produce better landscapes at all levels and promoting that you know, whole idea of, of diversity in the pollinators, because the honeybees only pollinate certain things. <coughs> They can't pollinate certain things. I think Dennis could probably dig a little bit more into that, and so so could David. Uh, you know, bumblebees can't get down in little tiny flowers. And actually, if you watch them, sometimes they'll actually be chewing at the base of these deep flowers to open up a hole because they know the nectar is in there. They just can't get in there from the front, so they'll come in, you know, from the back door. So when we start losing these 
small species that we don't even know around. You know, the things that we swat, the, the sweat bees and things. You know, they're very specialized in what they do. They can get down in those little tiny, tiny flowers. Well, if the flower disappears or the bee disappears, in essence, they both disappear. Any thoughts, David, before we open this thing up? Um, yes. Um, uh, native bees are, are, are certainly very specific. Um, and there are. They're all different, all different types and sizes. And basically, it, what they go to, what they feed on, and what they help reproduce has everything to do with the length of their tongue. Um, honeybees, and some are specialists. We have a native squash bee that specializes in pollinating pumpkins and squash. And um, redware is one of the few native bees whose populations are on increase. I have tons in my field. They're, they're rather shy. I've been able to take their photograph from time to time. Um, native bees are far more efficient pollinators of my crops than my honeybees. Um, and it comes down to um, their, their makeup. Honeybees are social, as, as we all know. They have a huge field force. They have job descriptions that are broken up. Um, to the course of their life. So they, they end their life basically as in the field force um, and, and they die because they wear out their wings um, gathering food, water, and nectar uh, and pollen. But they're also, honeybees are very effective at manipulating the landscape that they roam over. And that's because they are source specific in their feeding habits. They, a scout goes out collects a, a pollen or a nectar source from a particular type of plant, brings it back, passes it around, tells the other, other uh, bees in the field force exactly where it is and what it is, and that's what they go to. If it's clover, they can be blooming apple trees all around that clover and they don't go to the apple trees. Um, so what they do is, is, is they concentrate uh, on individual species and are very adapt. I think they've evolved uh, to increase the populations of, of certain species dramatically so they benefit the following year and the following year. They have the ability to store up food. Um, so if it's cold and wet and damp um, on an August morning and my pumpkins are, are blooming and need to be pollinated, um, they don't have to go out in the rain or the damp or the cool. Um, they can stay in the hive with, their, with their, all their buds and eat pollen and, and honey. Um, have a great breakfast. Uh, native pollinators can't, don't have that ability. So at first light, regardless of the weather, they're out in, in my pumpkins pollinating. The second thing is pumpkins are most viable first thing in the morning. Pu uh, pumpkins and squashes are native to the Americas. So they, they didn't evolve with honeybees. They, they evolved with native bees. So when I first lost my honeybees to, to mites back around 1990, that's when I decided that um, I didn't know what would happen with the honeybees, but I knew we must have native bees that pollinate pumpkins and squash. And my dilemma was, was trying to think of how can I manage my fields and my overall landscape to keep a population of native pollinators at the levels I need to be able to plant an entire field of pumpkins. Well, I split the difference. I plant my fields, if it's an actual, say, 20-acre field, its, it's proportions are 70-30. 70% 70 it's, I lay it out 
I have a 70-foot swath that pumpkins go in, a 30-foot swath that, that some secondary plant goes in. It's not a cash crop. It's something that, that I want to have three positive reasons for planting. Pollinators are a big one, so it needs to bloom. If it produces, say, buckwheat, if it produces a seed that birds feed on through the winter, that's fine with me. That's a positive. Uh, it benefits the soil. That's a positive. If it chokes out some obnoxious annual grasses, that's a positive. Um, once I started applying that philosophy to different aspects of my uh, th through my growing season, I started to see exponential benefits through the course of the growing season. Um, I certainly didn't, in, didn't realize that I would see such an increase in the number of beneficial predatory insects that would allow me to, to um, completely cut out insecticide sprays. Um, that, that, was, that was a great surprise. Um, but it also took um, a bit of tolerance on my part and a bit of risk taking. I had an IPM scout that would come and scout my fields and, and recommend when I should spray and what I should spray. And IPM scouts do that uh, for producers to limit the amount of uh, pesticides they use and do it only on a timely basis. Well, there were times where when stink bugs first came out several years ago, they were terribly bad. My IPM scout came out and he said, David, you're probably going to have to spray insecticide for the stink bugs. Uh, they suck and pierce through the thin skin of the developing pumpkins deform the, 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 the growth. Well, I had my fields laid out, 70-30, 70-30, which I found out later where the divine proportions Leonardo da Vinci came up with. <laughs> um, but in my, in, in, I'm out in my fields every day for hours at a time. During the growing season, I'm, I'm just I'm walking and observing and taking notes. And that's what I've done for pretty much all my life. Even, even if I didn't write down the notes, I mentally took notes. Well, there were stink bugs out there, but they were in the buckwheat. The buckwheat, I had plant my buckwheat in a timing with my pumpkins so that when my pumpkins were blooming and setting fruit, the buckwheat was going to be more succulent to the deer that wanted to come into the field at night. Minimize the damage to the pumpkins, which minimized disease pressure. I had, I've been able to reduce my, my sprays. Um, they can come in, migrate through, do what deer do. Um, I was tired of sitting around trying to figure out ways to get rid of them or kill them. Um, and at any rate, the stink bugs were in the buckwheat. It was succulent, and, and that's where they were. I didn't spray. I didn't take my, uh, rec the recommendations of my IPM scout, which wasn't the first time. The last thing I'm going to do, if my pumpkins are blooming, I'm not spraying an insecticide on them. I'll lose my crop before I do that. So as it turned out, I didn't spray. I didn't have a problem with stink bugs in my pumpkins. So when, when I heard this was the topic, sort of like Spike's introduction, any stuff that I had read was like absolute doomsday about the state of, of bees. So we, we heard some touching on it. How separate from the notion of, of creating landscapes that are more friendly to bees, should I be feeling optimistic or pessimistic about sort of the state of where we are for bees in, in this area and in our country? The, the, the fact is, is that 5% of the beekeepers in the country own 95% of the 2.6 million colonies. And we are not worried about honeybees going extinct. We're worried about those commercial beekeepers going extinct. 
And that's because these are the guys who move their colonies. Whether this is sustainable or not is sort of indifferent. They're the last nomadic farmers in the country. And so they start the year in, in, in California to pollinate the almonds, which requires over half of the colonies in the country. So everyone who has any sort of numbers of bees moves to California, and they're getting 165 175 bucks a hive for that one-month pollination event. But then they start spraying pesticides, so they have to move them out. And so those colonies, so an East Coast operation comes then to Florida, does some melons, goes to, to New York, does apples, Massachusetts, Maine to do blueberries, Massachusetts cranberries, Eastern Shore to do cucumbers or, or thing. These guys are the ones who cannot afford to lose 50% of their colonies every year and stay in business. So there are a lot of guys there who are making money, but there's an awful lot of them who are just hanging on. And a lot of the work we're doing in our lab is trying to figure out, well, what's the difference between the guys making it and the guys not making it? And so I think that as, as, as an industry that relies on a movable pollination force, there is trouble in that agricultural system. We also know that two or three species of bumblebees have gone extinct, probably because of the introduction of bumblebees from Europe to pollinate in greenhouses and a disease they have. And we don't have a good idea of what's happening to these, th these thousands of other native bees. So I don't think we could do this job if we thought it was there was no hope. Certainly we have to stem this 50% or more loss per year. That's just not, a, there's something seriously wrong with that system. Um, certainly I think that beekeepers in Maryland specifically have to do a better job controlling mites, and a lot of people have been very um, laissez-faire about that, in a good, nice way, but I think are causing a lot of damage. Um, and so, yes, hopeful, and I think that we've cre that there's a movement now, I think, that's starting that a lot of people have been trying to, to get elevated in, in the public consciousness that has resulted from it, so that's good. But certainly we need to, ch there are things that need to be identified and changed. And part of that is certainly how we use the landscape. Part of that is how we use pesticides, whether we use that prophylactically or in response. And I think that's the system you're advocating is you use it when you need it, not just because you have it. Um, and I think that's part of the solution too. And then just wise, smart, smart action to, to disease levels. I'd like to kind of add on to that, that I also think that there's more positives and negatives, primarily because of what's happening here tonight. There's more awareness and there's more concern, which starts that kind of groundswell. Uh, being a member of uh, Central Maryland Beekeepers, there's more and more new, we call them newbies, you know, new beekeepers uh, every year. A lot of failure, but there's constant, I mean, on the email chain, every day, questions about bees and, and you know, issues of how to raise, you know, and, and maintain their colonies. Uh, so I think just the education process, the fact that people are more concerned, they're finally starting to become aware that it's an issue, and most, you can call it a movement, you know, start with that kind of groundswell that says, we need to do something about this. And just like any other problem, we can only we can basically attack it from kind of the government level, which is policy and laws. But I think you really change it individually. Every single property, if everybody does a little bit of changing their landscape, a uh, few new people become beekeepers. People do things to promote native bees. I think that's the positive. Now, does that deal with the commercial beekeepers? No, they're not feeding off of my lawn and and your lawn. Uh, that's a kind of a different 
different animal to deal with but i think the positive is that we're concerned and at all levels people are starting to do something about it we're starting to see the connection we can't afford to lose these pollinators once they're gone they're gone we i don't think we're going to do a jurassic park and find uh you know, in our honey, you know, little genetics of, of bees that we're going to recreate new clones of bees somewhere. Um, I think you have every reason to be positive, but it's up to the individuals to do something positive. Um, and everybody here can do something positive. Um, it doesn't matter the scale. Um, just, just do it. Feel good about it and do it. Um, there's a, a couple other elements. Uh, I think it was briefly touched on. There's, there's uh, an invertebrate conservation group that's promoting um, roadside pollinator habitat. And at first blush, that sounds great. But with all the problems we have with butterflies and our bees, and especially butterflies, um, when it comes to roadside habitat, is we have a car as a two-ton fly swatter going at any speed, okay? And butterflies are just kind of limping across the road uh, at windshield level. Um, my own experience is from driving the, my backcountry roads, if a butterfly crosses in front of me at any close proximity, if I'm going over 30 miles an hour, that butterfly is probably damaged beyond repair. Um, so I don't recommend that. I mean, it, it, it sounds great. There's, there's tons of roadsides. Um, but I, I think we need to look at habitat um, in other areas and even corridors. Um, we, we don't need two-ton fly swatters swatting up butterflies and bees. Um, I mean, it, certainly it would be visual, um, but I, I, doubt, I doubt any number of monarchs will be able to migrate down 95 and, and, <laughs> and make it to Florida. <laughs> If I could bring it way down to a, a totally local level, if you could give two plants that you would plant in your backyard that would be good native species for birds and bees, if you could give me perimeters, something that the deer like to eat that would keep them on the perimeter as much as possible, and allow whatever is more on the interior to grow up. And if you could ask, tell me how to get my bees through the month of March without dying, I've lost all of them for the last three years, every March. So, you want to start? If you could do that, that'd be great. Well, I don't know if I could pick two plants. There's certain plants that have, that kind of went out of favor that I'm really promoting back again. Uh, that are that are native plants that are kind of midsummer shrubs, things like Itea, Virginia Sweet Spire is a great plant. Uh, Clethra is a good pollinator plant. And are these trees, are these bushes? These are shrubs. Are shrubs. Um, trees, of course, the, the big promotion of trees, if you want the most biodiversity, are oaks. You know, if you can plant oaks, now if you have a small property, an oak is probably not the thing you want to plant. Lindens are great. The basswood is the, is the native linden. is a great pollinator tree that bloom I guess is one of the latest bloomers uh, or, or pollens nectar sources for for bees and they're not overly large they're kind of a mid-sized tree uh, as far as perennials and things um, 
milkweeds are probably one of the the best plants because that's also the monarch butterfly host uh, but you know it's also a long longer bloomer uh, things like uh, you like butterflies um, you've got the um, Chiloni glabra turtle heads which are the host of the Baltimore checker spot plant so there's actually there's a good source if you go on uh, I think it's the US uh, Fish and Wildlife Service it's called uh, Native Plants for the Chesapeake Bay Region. It's not in print anymore, but you can get the PDF of it online, and it has all the native plants that would normally have been in the... Re now, the Chesapeake Region goes from Cooperstown, New York, all the way down into Virginia, but it's basically native plants, and within that, you'll have all kinds of specifications of does it like wet, does it like uh, sun, does it like shade, how big does it get? So it allows you to make that selection. I don't think there's one or two plants, because some of these plants... Uh, will support multiple species and in reality it's your landscape so it has to be something that you want in your landscape I don't know if that answered your question but that I think helps. that helps you know so how about the dread yeah. month of March so I'll just add to that and I think you're right there's not two plants but what you want is continuous bloom from spring to fall fall and so right now asters are so you want asters late fall goldenrod just passed so you want goldenrod a little bit earlier early spring you have holly you have lots of different things so you want to look at succession planting because these don't look pretty all year so you want to just do succession planting so you have something in bloom all year round i think that's key when you're choosing those um in terms did you treat for varroa mite and what did you treat with you did not well that's your problem and that's exactly when they start dying is march either late late summer so you or have march. to treat you that. have you to can. treat you have to have a mite management plan in place for responsible okay. beekeeping now, there are organic products you can use, organic acids, like formic acid, ants, it's formicae, so formic, ants produce formic acid, and actually, the, sometimes you'll watch a blue jay pick up ants and preen its feathers because it's getting rid of mites using formic acid, and so they also have essential oils, so I'm not advocating hard chemicals necessarily, but you need to have a mite strategy in place. You would not expect your dogs not to get mange if you didn't treat them for ticks and flies or fleas. And so it's exactly the same. It's just not responsible not to treat for mites. So mice. I thought they starved to death. No, I'm pretty sure. No, if, you if think this would, and also, I mean, the mites cause, I mean, it disturbs them, so they're eating more. So it could be that, okay. like a lot of people say starvation, but then you should have just fed them more. Um, right. And so that's, if you're losing them consistently and you're not treating for mites, that's the first thing you have to tackle. Oh. What what did you see when you opened up the hive, the dead hive? They were all tucked in. They were totally tucked into each. In the cells, home, empty cells. cells and was it still was it still capped honey above them? No, was that totally? Empty? They probably starved. They starved. Yeah, but but I but, but yeah, yeah I go uh, The other thing is, yeah, you, you need to make sure they have adequate stores. Um, I want to have at least sixty pounds of honey um, in in my hives. When they go into the winter, and you just by picking up, you can get some idea by picking up the back. Right. And um, certainly, an empty hive feels empty. Um, the other thing would, would would be you know look at so what was the population of the cluster when when they died? Um, a dwindling population because of mites and issues because of the mites. Um, that's that's the time of year. The other side, um, what I've what I've seen is that once a population gets to a certain point and they and they they want 
by late winter, they want to fire up a brood chamber. Once they fire up that brood chamber, they have to keep it at 92 degrees, um, regardless of the weather outside. And they actually, they, they basically kill themselves trying, trying to heat that small area of brood. They just overwork themselves. And you can see they'll, they'll be wet and slimy from just basically sweating and, and then freezing. But can you feed them in the winter? Dry sugar or sugar candy? Yeah, I mean, Bonded. emergency, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other point you just made is moisture. And I think in a lot of cases you may be sealing up the hive too much. They need moist, they need, that moisture needs to be able to get out. You don't want them to get cold. Uh, I've, we have debates all the time. I, like, I have screen bottom boards. Leave them on all winter. You know, leave a little bit of a gap at the top so that the air can get through. Uh, they actually did very well this past winter as cold as it was. Uh, you're yeah, trying actually, to keep they, drafts actually, out, but let, let, air get, let air get through. Uh, as we say, you, you talk to three beekeepers, you get 12 answers of what the... Because <laughs> the bees don't listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned that there's a talk show a few months ago about bees on the radio, and uh, uh, they said another phenomena is that uh, for whatever reason, it seems that um, when a hive, when a colony loses a queen, it's not making a new queen. And I've had that happen a couple times in the past couple of years, but in mid-summer, you know, I just realized that there's no new brood. For whatever reason, uh, there's no queen, but it's, you know, there's like 50,000 bees in there, and I just can't understand why they're not uh, creating a new queen. So we conduct this national survey every year, and, and that's where the, the lost numbers come from. And the number one cause of mortality, as reported by commercial beekeepers, is queen failure. And so where before we used to have queens that would last easily two years, now the average queen is lasting six months. And so that's an open question. Now there are a couple of possible reasons. One is that when a queen first emerges, she, she, she mates in her first two weeks of life with 16 drones, and she stores all that sperm in a, in a sac, the spermatheca. And if she's had any stress at all or chemical, or chemical exposure, she's not able to maintain that sperm alive, and so that sperm dies, and so she's laying duds, basically. Um, and so the other one is, is that if there are high virus levels the way that the colony sneezes is to replace the queen. But if there's not sufficient strength in that colony to replace the queen, so we think that that's another driver. So yeah, we've seen really high levels of queen replacement where they're not getting replaced, so queen supersedure. Um, and, and it's not clear why it is. But again, those three drivers, we think the viruses associated with the mites are come to play. We think that nutrition could come to play, but probably also pesticides may come into there, that the colony is so stressed that somehow that process is not replacing. But it's a hot topic right now. Right. So one of the things that uh, I read was that you know, some people say, well, you should be requeening your colonies every year. Absolutely. And I talked to uh, like my bee mentor, and he said, well, I never requeen. So I, I don't know what the right answer is. Certainly, you are not a commercial beekeeper in business today if you do not replace your queens once, maybe twice a year. So I can say that for commercial beekeepers. I don't think that that's always true for backyard beekeepers. Um, I do think, though, that we know from these survey responses that people who report replacing their queens once a year lose significantly fewer colonies than those who don't. So that's epidemiological based on about 20,000 responses. What's the best time of year to do that? Well, I would try to buy local queens if you can, and so then you're sort of dependent on the local market. 
because they don't have early queens. Um, so I would I would midsummer yeah, if you can get them. You can do it in spring. That's easier to find the old queen and replace them, and then you have some too. So it's 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 not a simple answer. It depends on how many colonies you have, what queens you want to introduce. Dennis, do you find that we're so concerned about swarms that we remove all these queen cells trying to stop swarms that we're not allowing the hives to reproduce queens on their own because that that fear? So we go in and we find all the swarm cells and we start taking all the queen cells out. So swarming is a natural behavior of bees to reproduce, right? So they produce those old, the old queen leaves with half the colony. Swarming is a genetically defined trait, though. So, but if we were to let them swarm, they would just swarm more because then we're breeding for swarming. So I think you're right. If you find supersedure cells, which look a little bit different, I would leave those in. But I would not encourage us to have more swarms. No, I think, especially in the urban environment, I think that just causes problems. For, for me, actually, I'd, I'd I'd let my hives swarm, um, just for that reason. I, I think I grew up where. Every hollow tree, every abandoned house had had a, a feral hive. Um, I watched watched them all go by the wayside when the mites hit in the late '80s. Um, so it was clear to me we lost a huge percentage of our genetic um, within the honeybee population. When I late '90s, when I was buying queens, I wasn't particularly happy. Um, some could certainly they were coming from California. They they could build up a hive really fast um, but to me those seven box hives are are too large um, what I would find one is is you're constantly adding boxes supers and they're filling them up um, with the nectar sources but now you've lost your ability to go in and check and, and manage the mites um, and those populations are increasing now all of a sudden end of July early, early August the the nectar sources would dry up, and I had this huge population of bees that were just under stress. Um, you can try pulling boxes off, some of the supers off, but then you have you just have just too many bees to fit in the hive that's left. Um, again, stressful. I invariably would lose those hives. What I found was um, the hives that swarmed, um, I had a much better chance of, of one, if not both, surviving. So no doubt I didn't get the honey. Um, that I would, would have gotten off that seven seven super hive, but I'm a bee haver. Um, I want to have bees. Um, when when the bees wanted to swarm, um, they swarm when 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 they know it's it's the best time. They they, they raise healthier queens. The queens are getting their larger celled. Um, there's there's more royal jelly. Um, my take was I was getting better queens from the swarm cells. Um, and I wanted to keep, as, as you, you pointed out earlier, I was trying to keep back some genetics that I found uh, that, that seemed to make it. Um, I can't say there was any, any, any rhyme or reason, but the, the swarming cycle, also what I found, my observation was, it was breaking up the mite cycle in two ways. One, the hive that swarmed I caught it, I would try to get it on new foundation, so it's building all new cells. And they, those bees may have some mites, but they don't have a brood chamber for those mites to expand their numbers yet. It takes a while. The existing hive that, that the queen left, 
with those young bees, since it's generally the height of the, of the nectar uh, flow very quickly without a mated queen for those couple weeks that she mates and hasn't started laying, they very quickly um, fill every empty cell. The, the, all, all the brood hatches out and that entire hive is full of nectar. Um, again, the brood, the brood cycle's being broken and, and the mite cycle's being broken. I, I absolutely agree that, and, and, and the, the other thing we know is that if you split, you can accomplish all those same things without chasing a swarm. So be, just before swarming, you can split that colony in half and, 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 and do the same thing. I think the worry about letting colonies just swarm, especially with, in, I think that in your area that makes sense, but if you start letting that happen in Baltimore or D.C., then we have a problem of swarming, and that just brings the negative connotations. I think it's only responsible for urban beekeepers especially to prevent swarming, to stop some of the hysteria that happens around swarms. So I agree with you completely that, that managing your colonies in such a way that you split and break up the brood pattern reduces varroa, and that's an excellent part of that toolkit. But I don't, and, and if you're in an isolated area, swarming is great, but I don't know that it's appropriate for every situation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, a question related to a comment that Jack made about advising on federal policy. And I think everybody in the panel has in some way been affected by policies about food regulation. David, I know in Montgomery County uh, debates in County Council about pesticides, and Jack, you mentioned the policy discussions. You are, and Dennis, you're probably that famous bee whisperer we heard about at the White House, impacting policy. But there are many competing issues today. For every good thing you talked about, whether it's local sourcing, keeping the beekeepers alive, trying to retain your smallness surrounded by bigness, and trying to plant more pollinators, in the urban areas, we hear about the problem of eating more almonds during droughts is supposedly bad uh, because they require so much water. Uh, the fact that big crops really are taking over and everybody's fear of GMO being used in them. Uh, others mentioned earlier, where do we stand today? But I would ask a question, even though people don't like to get into policy discussions, are there policy discussions that we actually need to start having, and what should they be? Well, I'd like to first off say that what Spike's doing is, is a good start to a lot of this. If you get the local grocers, the local consumer, the local restaurants to start looking for that local source and really forcing that issue, that starts that, that ball to roll. Plus, it's a, it's a good education process. But I think also simple things like the government has uh, invasive species lists. Some of the plants you can still buy at the garden center are on those invasive species lists. Why are we doing that? If this plant is supposed to be so bad that the federal government or state government will put that on a, you know, a list, and then we, are, we can still go to the nursery and buy that, that means we're still out there propagating these, these plants. You know, so I think uh, just the idea of trying to make policy and and common sense work together, uh, I think would be a good thing. But I think even just at the local government level, um, the, the landscape manuals that the county uses or the city uses to 
force the issue of native plants. I know in Baltimore County, if you want to plant anything on county property, it better be an oak or it better be a different kind of oak. Because basically they are promoting, you know, basically trying to reap. We're not going to end up with oak hickory forests because I don't think we're going to find many viable hickory uh, you know, forests anymore. But basically we're trying to recreate the ecology that may have been here before. So that's a policy type thing. So when I respond on a design that requires permitting from the county, I must follow their landscape manual. So if that manual dictates native plants, that native, because what, what the developer will do, he'll respond to what he has to do. He wants to get the thing built. He wants to get that property sold. So he's more than willing to plant native plants just to get the project moving. If it allows him to plant something else that's cheaper, that looks prettier for, for a season, he just soon do that, but he doesn't really care. It's about you know, responding to his needs. So I think those kind of policies are very easy to do, and they don't hurt anybody. Are there any bad policies, though? That well, I think that, that well, one of the pause, I, well, I don't know if it's bad or not, but one of the things that we're looking at trying to constructively change is right now landowners get a credit if they plant 100 trees per acre and this is for the Chesapeake nitrogen phosphorus thing, and, and it requires it to be trees. And so one of the things we're trying to advocate for and do some of the background research for is, well, can't that just be meadows um, where you have some grasses that are deep-rooted so that we're still getting the nitrogen so that we've gone tree, very tree-centric in the world of global warming and all that, but I think we've gone a little bit too far, and we have to recognize that meadows are an important part of the landscape too that benefit pollinators, and also probably have a lot of these positive benefits too. And so that's something in Maryland locally I think we can do. Also there are regulations that some, some cities and townships prevent bees. They consider them dangerous animals. There's been a big movement in New York to change that law, and I think we should try to stamp that out. Because anytime you have a law that prevents honeybees, it, it sort of opens up the opportunity for non-managed, which tend to be more aggressive, to move in. So I think these are some examples of where there's regulation, where it needs to be changed or disc discarded in order to help these. Why, why, why the meadows are not, in this part of the country, were not part of the original uh, natural habitat. My understanding is with the uh, Maryland Department of the Environment that their goal now is to um, return as much of the landscape as possible to the way it was pre-colonial era. Right. And so that's why they don't advocate uh, I, so you don't think there was any meadows in Maryland before the... Well, it's not it was right all chestnut? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It was all chestnut before we came, wasn't it? Yeah. So I don't know. I think that there, I think that there is... I mean, certainly we have the diversity here to suggest that there were meadow-feeding wildlife and bees. So that's the interesting. I've not heard that there was exclusively forest. So it's a good point. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Um... I'm going to go into that a little bit. My, my take of, of, a, of our landscape, certainly my landscape, um, there were definitely meadows. Um, we may well have been the majority of forested ground, but the Native Americans had were active farmers in, in many of the lowland bottoms for creeks in, in my area. Um, we find the artifacts. Um, not so much now that we're no-tilling, um, just about all the ground, but when it was plowed, you could walk out and find artifacts. I have, I have many, even the, even when it goes back as far as a, being a Clovis point. Um, we had beavers, and 
I've watched as the beavers have returned in the past 50 years. They come in and, and build up a dam um, along a creek. If it's in a forested area, it opens that area up. It may last um, several years, may last 10, but it eventually gets abandoned. When that dam rots and breaks away, all that silt is, is held back and it immediately grows up into a small meadow. Um, and I suspect that's that's one of the things that Native Americans would move into then to plant. Um, you'd have certainly nutrient-rich soil. Um, and they're trying to grow in corn, pumpkins, and beans. I would just say I'm not an expert on policy by any stretch, but we hosted uh, Senator Ben Cardin and a few others and a bunch of farmers um, at Woodbury a few uh, a couple months ago. And it was refreshing, I think, to hear agriculture in the state of Maryland described and taken at, and I'm talking about the agriculture that we support, taken as, you know, something that had value and, and, and merit and should be thought about as, as uh, worthwhile. Because we all know that I think in this state, it's been corn, soy, and chickens for, for too long. And when, once those voices were heard from, not only from, um, from growers of, of, of organic produce, but also, you know, we had oyster growers represented, and they were an incredibly articulate voice for, for what they thought needed to happen in this state. Um, I, I don't think beekeepers were represented, but I think we, we need to understand, and, you know, what we're hearing is, is how all of these things are so interconnected within this food system for sure and beyond. Um, I think the first step is for us to start advocating on behalf of these things and get to the people that can make a difference. Again, I'm no expert on policy, but I saw firsthand because I know from that meeting, uh, Cardin's gone on and, and, and helped our oyster growers, for one, uh, get past some of the, the, the roadblocks that were, were inhibiting their growth in, this, in, in our part of the Chesapeake Bay. First step is, is being an advocate like these guys clearly can be um, for, for these practices. real specific um, pesticide question. Um, I'm in a, in a um, retail garden center, so I have customers that want to spray for bugs and weeds. And uh, one thing that comes up that I feel like I've gotten completely opposite answers on is imidacloprid, um, which is a systemic pesticide. And in your opinion, uh, will that travel all the way through a plant to the flower and, and affect the bees? Do we know or what are, because I might have one neighbor who wants to get rid of the scale on their holly or get rid of the Japanese beetle grub, so they're going to put it down and it's going to come into the clover flower or into the holly flower. So yeah, this is a really hot topic. And so I think it's important to differentiate some of the risk associated. So the, the whole idea of these neonics was that you coat the seed and that way you don't have to spray very much because the plant sucks it up and it gets into the leaves, so anything that chews on the leaves dies. Now, plants naturally have evolved all sorts of toxins to prevent herbivores, and they've also developed filters that prevent that toxins from getting into the nectar and pollen. So in those neonic-treated plants, certainly we're finding evidence of it in pollen and nectar. But it's not the presence that's so important, it's the amount. And so we have not yet found levels that we think can cause harm in nursery stock that was, seed that was treated then. However, some people like will root drench, and this was a big case of that 
in Oregon where they root drenched a basswood tree and as a result hundreds of thousands of bumblebees were dead in this target parking lot um, the next day and that was to prevent aphids from pooping on people's cars and so certainly there is a disconnect between using these highly toxic and highly problematic things that are easy to misuse for when there's no human risk or food safety risk involved. Like, why are we using this to control aphids from pooing on people's cars? Just park somewhere else. So, so that seems a disconnect. At the same time, though, I think that the neonics, in some cases, I think it's overused. Like, right now, you can't buy corn that isn't treated unless you ordered it a year before. So there's a disconnect there that we're using way too much of this. But as a tool, in the toolbox, when you have a problem, it's probably a lot better than some of the other pesticides because the other pesticides would kill... We've had bee kills of 50... Uh, one guy lost 50,000 colonies one year from uh, a product that's no lo- that neonics replaced. The problem with neonics is it's not killing colonies outright if it's hurting them at all. It's a sublethal effect, and so it's very hard to monitor. I will say, though, that neonics are probably having a... I don't think that there's any credible evidence to show that neonics having a dramatic effect at the colony level. However, it's probably hurting native bees much more seriously. And that's because a colony of bees can lose 30% of its workforce and still survive. Where if you hit out a a queen bumblebee, you've lost that whole generation. Or the solitary bees, you've lost a generation. So I think the neonic story is more harmful for the natives than for the honeybees. I think the idea of biodiversity helps also because the more natural predators you have to fight off some of the insects that you're concerned about, you create a balance. And I think we've created an imbalance that the native predators aren't there anymore. Uh, And so a lot of, especially the invasive insects, now are able to proliferate. And our native insects can't fight them off. Uh, I don't know if it's anecdotal or not, but you were talking about stink bugs earlier, and we had, at our place, you just stink bugs everywhere. And then later, like the second summer, I was mowing down in kind of our field, and I noticed mantids, praying mantises, everywhere. All different, they were just coming up, and I started noticing less stink bugs. Now, whether the mantids decided the stink bugs didn't taste that bad and they started eating them, I don't know, but that diversity of a native predator starting to maybe fight back. But if we had gone and killed off, you know, all the habitat for the mantids, would they have then not been available to maybe take care of this other pest? So I think just the idea of enough diversity that you have this balance trying to be established where landscapes that have one or two plants in them or areas in the city where there's whole areas devoid of plants and then all you have is one or two species there is no diversity, and so what you start having is whatever can feed off of that plant becomes the dominant species, and if that's something you don't want, then what do we do? We come back, we start spraying. We need to get rid of that, you know, that pest. Last, last question. Oh, sorry. Last. Last. Quick one, because GMO is often discussed, but we haven't talked about it tonight. Is there any relevance or impact of GMO farming, pro or con, to the fate of bees and biodiversity? Um, I won't won't grow any GMO-modified plants, Um, but I can't speak for 
other farmers um, as far as the economy of that. What I will say, since I'm surrounded by plenty of, of commodity crop growers that are using GMO crops, I don't find them per se negative on my ability to keep a healthy population of, uh, and biodiverse population of pollinators and bees and beneficial insects in general. And, and some of it is simply because a GMO bean field is clean. It's not, or corn, it's not bringing pollinators and other beneficial insects in. It's not habitat for them. Um, but you could, you could certainly improve um, and, and promote habitat in and through those, those GMO fields, I, I'd say very easily on, on, on the scale that, that I do. Um, that could then in turn um, be habitat for, again, beneficial insects that, that would help reduce other pests that come into those GMO crops. Um, so there's a couple of different GMOs. I mean, directly we fed we fed GMO pollen to bees, and we have no noticeable effect on bees, and that makes sense. The G, the GMO that's supposed to help against corn borer is a Lepidoptera, so the caterpillars and, and moths and butterflies, and it's a protein that breaks down their gut. And so then what happens is the natural bacteria in the caterpillar's gut gets into the bloodstream, and they die from blood poisoning. And we have autopsied tens of thousands of bees, and we have never seen symptom of septicemia. And all the evidence shows that there's no direct relationship. Now, is there indirect? Because we have Roundup-ready stuff, and that's killing all the weeds much more easily, and that might be reducing forage. So there may be indirect effects, but certainly there is no evidence of direct from direct feeding of the pollen. Differ with that notion. I mean, I agree with the no direct effect on bees, but the indirect effect is huge. I mean, and I think that's the theme of what we've been talking about. Monoculture, more than anything, has wiped out the diversity of our habitat, which has killed the insect populations. And I, I had this conversation with the head of Chesapeake Heritage Wildlife Foundation, Ben Garber, who said that the quail have disappeared because our biodiversity has disappeared, and it's, I think, it's directly attributable to GMO growing. You, you may have, you may be onto a solution in growing other crops with other species of uh, plants within GMO, GMO fields, and maybe that's a policy we need, but I think the two are very much linked. Um, as, as, and I may not understand it well enough, but that's my impression that GMO growing is very much linked to the loss of species diversity in our, um, and which is a direct, directly killing our insect populations. Um, I'd like to go over this. Um, actually, um, that the decline of, of the quail uh, in Maryland, in my area, um, was far earlier than any GMO crops. It actually coincided with the switchover um, to no-till farming, which most people agree was a huge benefit um, for the for the environment. And the reason being, with any farming practice or any sort of landscape management, if you want to support bees, it's, it's not willy-nilly. 
you have to think it through and and if for any biodiversity otherwise you'll create what I refer to it as a as, as a sink um, where you basically you're inviting uh, this biodiversity in and then because you for some reason decide to do a different manipulation you've just taken everything everything that they've come in to enjoy and, and reproduce on you've taken away now in the case of uh, the quail growing up on a dairy farm with all these diverse crops and, and fields one of the things we did for our corn in order to plant corn in our area we had to plow that field the fall before from a soil standpoint that was terrible it went through the winter bare um, but that was the only way you were going to be able to come back in the spring it was going to dry out quick enough that you could work that field down and get your corn planted in a timely fashion before the weeds absolutely took over so basically you had an area if you were planting corn you didn't have quail trying to nest in that field the quail were going into the, the fields that had cover but now we switch over to no-till farming and every field now has a cover crop you're going in to, to covered fields that are prime nesting habitat for quail and now doing your manipulations to plant your corn for some people say oh it was the chemicals I, I disagree it was the chemicals it's just a, the total switch over of the habitat it was in this great habitat of growing plants it had um, protection from birds of prey and because of the cover there were plenty of insects but now you're using a herbicide to burn off that cover and not just that um, you're coming back with with a tractor that's set with a planter that's that's splitting that sod every 30 inches the chances of a, of a nesting bird in that field making it through is not very good um, that I'm convinced that's the device of our quail and a number we have no we no longer have meadowlarks when I was a kid there'd be a, in the evening there'd be a meadowlark in every single fence post singing away they're gone number of our field birds are gone um, it has nothing to do with GMO crops it's just it's the way we're managing it's the, it's the way we're growing and that still that gets gets back to scale everything it's about scale plant meadows yeah <laughs> maybe we can plant meadows on that and I will talk about the menu you know the first thing I, I'd like to say is I wish everybody could hear this conversation and what these guys had to say tonight but they can, because <laughs> we, we are on Heritage Radio Network, and this will be up soon, and uh, I'm going to go back and listen to it, because I, I just, uh, I can't thank you guys enough. For this <laughs> and um, that said, we do have a great little meal planned for everybody. There's honey all the way through it. It won't be that sweet, but we have a... Uh, we have the centerpiece is a, is a beautiful uh, ham sandwich that we made with parts and labor ham, um, some hawksill cheddar, lettuce uh, from, gosh, I should know this. Uh, uh, and uh, bread that we baked over Woodbury Kitchen, honey mustard made with uh, the honey that you brought. Well, Karen brought. Karen, Karen brought. Uh, and our own, our mustard from our, 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 our good friend, uh, Heinz Tomei. Um, we also have a... Uh, kind of a, um, a spoon bread made with local corn and a little more honey and some squash. We have a couple salads and some honey glazed carrots um, and all topped off with some honey pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really? So, honey pie? Honey pie. Wow. 
So, you guys will all enjoy that. We'll continue the conversation uh, over supper. And and um, and once again, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Dave. Thanks again for joining us tonight Artifacts for our Origin Speaker Series. And thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series.